Welcome to episode 11 of Swift Unwrapped. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Samard. And today we'll be talking about the ownership manifesto. That's right. And today's episode is brought to you by BuddyBuild. They're a continuous integration, deployment, and user feedback platform built specifically for Android and iOS development teams. Uh, It takes minutes to set up. It can be easily customized to perfectly match your app's specific build requirements. By using BuddyBuild, you'll gain back the time normally spent on creating and maintaining your development pipeline, freeing up to focus on building apps that your users will love. Uh, Thousands of companies like Slack, Meetup, Firefox trust BuddyBuild with their mobile development because it's the fastest and most reliable way to test and release their iOS and Android apps. Join the tens of thousands of developers already using BuddyBuild. You can check them out today for free at BuddyBuild.com. Thanks to BuddyBuild for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, so let's get started. Um, so the ownership manifesto, you can find it in the docs directory of the main Swift repo. Um, John McCall is the the primary author, and there have been revisions uh, since. And uh, this, the entire idea here is basically about giving programmers uh, more uh, control about uh, memory ownership and a, a more, I guess, like manual way to kind of manage memory. Yeah, manual. Um, I'd, I'd use the word explicit, like really conveying right. intent of usage right. uh, in a much more fine-grained way than is possible today. Um, so if we look at kind of a bit of the, um, a bit of the motivation for this, uh, if we look at Swift's current system, um, Swift heavily relies on this copy-on-write set of mechanisms to uh, usually intelligently just make a copy of the underlying data that's represented by a type or or an instance or a value um, only upon mutation. And even then, only when um, there is more than one reference to this underlying data, right? So this is where if you've ever seen the word uh, or or the method is uniquely referenced Mm -hmm. come up. Um, it's basically to make this check to see, well, if this value is only being used in one place, I don't need to copy it to maintain the original. I can just mutate it in place. But say there's concurrent access, say there are more than one accessor to uh, the underlying value, then um, Swift at runtime will, a lot of these standard library types uh, will then check, is this uniquely referenced? Um, If not, then let's go ahead and make a copy and the mutation will only apply to this kind of second pointer to the underlying data structure. Right. So for example, if you have an array that you're passing around with a bunch of data in it, it's not going to get copied uh, every single time uh, it's passed around or reassigned to a different variable if it never gets mutated. So if you never like add or remove elements from that array, uh, all those... Uh, instances will just be pointing to the same underlying buffer. Yeah, that's right. And it's important to to note here that it's not as much of a kind of language uh, construct guarantee that copy on write is happening for whatever arbitrary type you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more, the, the bulk of this is really implemented at the standard library level mm-hmm. um, and fairly explicitly by um, by 
standard library uh, contributors. And so for types like array, for types like um, other, mostly collections, this really, uh, this this is really relevant collections and collection-like types like strings as well. And the copy isn't always um, a, a full copy. Often it'll it'll basically depend on the internal representation of the underlying data. So, for example, a contiguous array or a contiguous buffer might um, copy the whole thing, but for the standard array, it might just copy parts, subsets of the array, mm-hmm. uh, depending on on the implementation. And, of course, if you're building your own types um, that use the standard library types as underlying primitives, right? So if you have, say, a struct um, that uses an array as an internal implementation detail, say you're building your own like ordered set collection type and you're using some of the found, some of the standard library types underneath, um, you can basically compose standard library types and make use of the effort that they've put in for copy on write behavior. Uh, so this is as opposed to say like writing entirely new types that are just backed by uh, unsafe um, mutable buffer or something. But you can uh, write your own types that make use of copy on write. That's right. And and in fact, you, uh, you would have to, to even be able to compose with the more primitive uh, standard library types. Um, I'm just saying that there's a lot of that work that's been done for you at a more kind of exactly. fundamental level. Right, um, right. But you do need to be aware of this in order to fully tap into to the benefits. So all this to say that Swift makes heavy use of copy on write. And heavy use of value types. Value types, yeah, absolutely. Um, But uh, this copy on write behavior, even though it does lead to some um, generally useful and fairly powerful patterns, uh, it's not without its trade-offs. So, for example, you might have, if the compiler can't guarantee, say, that there's only, for example, a single access at any given time, or it can't can't guarantee that, say... um, a previous still retained value or a reference to a value is still being used or not used, uh, it still has to make that copy, um, even in cases where the copy is superfluous or redundant. And so this leads to um, excessive uh, memory overhead in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, it leads to expensive copying. Um, all of these different copies need their own ref counting, their own uniqueness checking. Uh, ARC has overhead and retain release calls for all of these additional references. And although ARC is deterministic, it, sometimes it's difficult to infer what the ARC, what ARC's behavior will be as an end user um, without making use of, of fairly, uh, fairly complex tools like address sanitizer, for example, or using the memory profiler or instruments, for example. So there are all of these trade-offs that are involved with this approach of mostly copy on write. Yeah, and even though ARC is deterministic, which is a good thing, uh, there still is the overhead of uh, maintaining the reference counts and checking that. And uh, yeah, that's right. And the promise of uh, a modern compiler stack like LVM um, is that you can make use of the um, passes that it has in order to statically analyze your code and kind of reduce and optimize uh, the amount of retain releases that happen. But even then, um, even as smart as a compiler can be, um, if the developer doesn't provide intent uh, or or semantically annotate uh, their code 
And right now, there aren't too many public ways that developers can even do this uh, other than kind of some internal compiler annotations like at Silgen or at inline or things right. like that. Right. Um, then the compiler can only do so much. Um, and it can, much like there's only certain checks that can be done at compile time and others need to be done at runtime, a, a lot of uh, Arc's behavior also falls into this, especially in very performance-sensitive code bases where you do need to have full control over when um, you know, something is retained or not retained. And in Objective-C, we, all, we have all sorts of constructs for this, right? We have uh, unsafe, unretained, uh, for example, as, as kind of a Clang directive. Um, but in Swift, we have very few of these. Some of them are public but undocumented, like those at Silgen, at uh, inline keywords that I was mentioning earlier, directives. Uh, and so what John McCall and this ownership manifesto here aims to do is to really kind of define a framework moving forward that uh, in the cases where um, copy on write and ARC and just Swift's general memory model right now um, it falls short of uh, the expectations or, or, or the requirements, then, well, maybe there's an escape hatch. Maybe there's an additional way uh, of uh, progressive disclosure that developers can opt into for very fine-tuned performance um, tuning, right? So that's yeah. that's basically the the, the problem um, as it exists today. And really, I, sh- I should state that in 90% of the cases, um, Swift's current memory ownership model should be sufficient. Definitely. Yeah. I think the vast majority of programmers will never have to worry about this. Um, Although I was talking to some iOS developers recently about uh, how they noticed uh, some memory issues with their data types. They were using structs for most of their models, and then they actually switched to immutable classes um, to uh, reduce that memory overhead um, and so you get the same semantics if you're using a class and everything is let, right? Right. Uh, yeah, they had to do this for various reasons, apparently. But that's probably more of, you know, the compiler will probably eventually optimize those issues away. Well, um, you, you can potentially. today as well, right? Yeah. Um, by, by being um, careful and considered in how you build your own custom types. Sure. Uh, and this is where kind of reusing these primitive standard library types um, mm-hmm. in in a way where hopefully if, if you're familiar a bit with their implementation, then you can avoid those copies, right? And you can also back uh, your own value types with um, internally represented reference types, mm. much like ArrayWorks, yeah, so yeah. that you can get the benefits of um, minimizing copies, mm-hmm. which at this, at this point you're copying a pointer to a reference rather than copying the entire contents of, of a struct, say. Right, um, right. Without, uh, while preserving the compile time guarantees of, of using value types. Um, and then you can also use classes or reference types uh, to provide value semantics, mm-hmm. right? So this is an important distinction. Reference types doesn't mean always reference semantics. Um, that's usually what you get by default, but by designing your APIs or your types carefully, uh, you can still provide value semantics with reference types. So they're not uh, a direct one-to-one correlation. Right. Interesting. Yeah, so all this to say, most uh, programmers, at least on Apple's platforms, will uh, rarely have to worry about what the ownership manifesto lays out 
But if, if Swift evolves to really tackle the embedded systems uh, area of programming, which I think is kind of, I don't know if it's an official stated goal, but it's a, it's a maybe an unofficial stated goal of Swift to eventually be able to be used on embedded systems um, where you have constrained uh, memory and you need more explicit control over over your allocations and yeah yeah so uh, embedded systems is one potential application um, real-time audio processing or video processing where you need uh, extremely deterministic um, performance profiles so that you can't you know the the amount of computation necessary to um, perform whatever additional signal processing you have to do on an audio frame or a video frame um, probably won't be all that excessive um, but you do need uh, you can't skip a frame right and you do need that uh, kind of soft real-time guarantee right. that is sometimes difficult to enforce with arc mm-hmm. um, where you don't have these explicit uh, 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 retain release calls. And then with just general systems programming, or uh, even if you're not doing any of this, but you have a performance hotspot in your iOS app, well, maybe in that one part of the code, instead of, say, diving down to C, mm-hmm. um, you can dive down to a uh, more explicit memory ownership model uh, for your Swift code there. Uh, right. So this is definitely an improvement over kind of the unsafe APIs that you can use to do this today or uh, the unsafe languages that you can use to do this today. So the situation mostly boils down to avoiding copies, avoiding um, allocations, uh, which is mostly this one and the same most of the time, um, and avoiding um, atomic memory counting operations. So arcs retain and release calls, which which have to be atomic to ensure safety in concurrent environments. Right. Yeah. So one of the core rules here of this ownership system would be the law of exclusivity, uh, which requires the implementation to prevent variables from being simultaneously accessed in uh, conflicting ways. Uh, They give an example here in the manifesto where you could pass, uh, for example, a variable to an in-out parameter to two different functions or uh, even, I guess, two different parameters of the same function that are in-out. You could pass the same variable there, Um, which currently the compiler doesn't... uh, have any restrictions against doing this. Yeah, that's right. So um, basically it boils down to whether or not Swift should continue supporting uh, simultaneous access. And and this manifesto uh, kind of outlines what they define as an instantaneous access versus more of a long-lived access. Uh, and so when, when you have um, things like uh, mutations that span more than just kind of a single operation. So say you have, uh, you, you pass an in-out, you, you pass the same variable to two in-out parameters of a function. This is the classic example. Um, they both hold kind of a long-lived mutation on that variable for the same amount of time. So it's very difficult for the Swift compiler to enforce that, uh, say, uh, one of those operations will happen before another, or that uh, one operation will begin and complete before another one begins and completes. And this is 
one of the classic kind of reentrant uh, concurrent programming problems where you need to maintain safety of access uh, when you have multiple readers or a writer and multiple readers or multiple writers. Um, and so what this law of exclusivity basically says is that um, starting with Swift 4, in Swift 3 compiler mode, it'll um, produce a compile time error when you do have this simultaneous access or this uh, this non-exclusive access. And then in Swift 4, in Swift 4 compiler mode, it will actually be, um, so in Swift 3, it'll be a warning. In Swift 4, it'll be an error. Um, and this is to help lay the groundwork for tools to leverage this exclusivity to perform compiler optimizations uh, will will be based on, right? So we need kind of a stable, sensible base to be able to provide uh, some of the more concrete tools to leverage ownership, just even to be able to build them. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this also has implications for ABI stability as well, which is why it's important to get this kind of lay in for Swift 4? I think so. I'm not quite sure what the ABI stability uh, implications for all of this are. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a section at the bottom here of the manifesto. Uh, Yeah, this is a pretty long manifesto. Yeah. Um, Yeah, but basically laying this groundwork is uh, the only aspect um, as as far as this is laid out that impacts the ABI stability, which is why this is the work that's being done first. And not only that, but it is foundational for the other tools to be built on top. Mm -hmm. Um, What's interesting about this law of exclusivity is that um, unlike a lot of other aspects of Swift safety, which are very clearly defined either uh, at compile time or at runtime, um, the law of exclusivity will be enforced with a mixture or rather a variety of enforcement methods, some of which are enforced at compile time. Uh, and then there are certain types of declarations and, and use cases that can't be statically reasoned about that will require runtime um, enforcement. Uh, so much like uh, kind of a runtime assertion, if if an exclusivity lock can't be um, can't be gained uh, for for one of these concurrent accesses. Yeah. So uh, as far as static enforcement goes, um, they're pretty straightforward cases, um, like in out arguments that we mentioned, where the compiler can statically analyze uh, usage there or immutable variables and. Uh, a few other cases. Um, But like JP said, for the dynamic enforcement, that's something that would happen at runtime. And if that's violated at runtime, then uh, you'd have a hard crash. That's right. And um, I guess the the motivation here is that rather than um, potentially crashing or leading to undefined behavior due to a race condition, um, this mechanism of dynamic enforcement would actually be a lot more deterministic as to whether or not um, uh, the law is being violated. Um, And the way it does this, uh, you would think uh, instinctively that replacing kind of these atomic arc checks with um, law of exclusivity checks is basically trading one performance problem with another or one one expensive operation with another. But the way the the proposed way that this is going to be implemented here uh, is by avoiding a- atomic operations by having um, basically 
two additional bits per variable that will represent one of three states, whether the variable is unaccessed, read, and modified. So those are the three states. And um, by virtue of the uh, uh, law of exclusivity and the way that uh, enforcement will will be checked, um, these operations don't need to be um, don't need to be atomic. Um, so as long as there's kind of a best effort, it should reliably detect these deterministic violations. It won't necessarily detect all race conditions, but it'll detect them most of the time. And that way they don't need to uh, enforce this atomic uh, bit flipping operation on on these two bits here. Uh, one of the really interesting parts of the manifesto that, that, to be honest, I have kind of a hard time um, – breaking down and understanding is that as part of this dynamic enforcement, there are situations in which uh, the compiler might emit an error statically if it can detect that uh, dynamic enforcement will always detect a conflict, will always fail. Right. Which and is... I don't know what that means. <laughs> seems to be a contradiction. It, yeah. I, I would venture to say that this might mean some sort of like um, compile time, kind of almost dynamic pass as as part of the compiler that will, I don't know, build up the state machine of all the potential cases and then see, um, much like the Clang static analyzer or, mm-hmm. or Swift static, uh, static analyzer uh, can basically determine if um, a variable will never be used, for example, or something like that, that it it might build up this, this similar kind of semi-dynamic abstract syntax tree uh, constraint resolver. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Um, or, or, or maybe I'm completely misreading this, but it is an interesting part of the manifesto. Uh, yeah, so this would this be something like basically running these uh, uh, certain computations behind the scenes and seeing if you get a trap, uh, if you violate, like while you're running through this, see if you violate the law of exclusivity and then say, oh, there's an error here. I think what it boils down to is um, probably something similar to like uh, Silgen will generate – um, these runtime checks. And then if the Silgen pass happens before the optimization passes, which is the case today, then the optimization passes might say, uh, well, with the generated checks that were added in at compile time as part of the Silgen phase, then maybe we can guarantee that there's like unreachable code in there. Sure. And then have some sort of Semi, well, it's all static analysis, but it's by statically determining that the dynamically generated code <laughs> uh, can, will always fail. Right. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense whatsoever. Uh, and I'd imagine that if they can do this for the failure case, that they should also be able to do this in um, the success case where right. it can never fail. Right. And so I think this might be something that uh, the manifesto alludes to a little later where there's room for improvement here in, f- in terms of shifting some of these dynamic checks back at the uh, static check level. Um, so I'm, I'm very curious to see how this plays out. Yeah, and for dynamic enforcement, uh, the manifesto specifically calls out um, where it will be used, um, which includes... Uh, Instance properties of class types, static and class properties, and global variables, um, which makes sense. Yeah, it's but, generally uh, the kinds of things that, as a programmer, you need to watch out for uh, and make sure that if you have concurrent code or um, simultaneous access code, that it needs to be that those things need to be reentrant safe. Right. 
Um, and then the static enforcement, uh, uh, conversely, will be used for immutable variables, um, which also intuitively makes sense. If, if it's immutable, then should be a lot easier to reason about the, uh, the access semantics. Um, local variables, except when uh, it can be it, it's um, it, it can be passed uh, and and retained by a closure that it itself might need to be reentrant safe. Um, in out arguments, as we mentioned before, and instance properties of value types. So I think um, in m- most of the cases here, static enforcement should be possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a developer, you can make use of this to hopefully leverage. Um, what constructs you know to be uh, statically enforceable. And if you can refactor your code to have a compile time error uh, whenever line of enforcement can't be applied, then that's certainly preferable. And I suspect the uh, standard library team will do that whenever it can as well with its public APIs or, or internal code if they can make use of this uh, law, of, law of exclusivity. Yeah, and so the way this would look to... Um programmers, uh, what they propose is uh, basically introducing a new shared keyword, um, which would be uh, very similar to, it looks like Rust's uh, as a borrow keyword, I think. Yeah, I think it's a read-only borrow or... Something like that, yeah. I'm not super familiar with Rust, but a lot of this is based on uh, how Rust manages this uh, as well, which on a side note is pretty cool that you know, Swift is like the the Swift team uh, and the language is borrowing <laughs> <laughs> from other languages, you know, features that they find valuable um, and that have been proven in other contexts that they want to uh, bring to Swift. Right. And what's interesting is this shared keyword, um, it, it's basically how uh, um, self on methods has always been passed. Um, so if you've ever had to debug um, just arc behavior when uh, when using Swift, um, you'll notice that arc semantics are more or less flipped uh, in Swift versus Objective-C, where, uh, where self on methods has always been passed as plus zero versus plus one in Objective-C. Um, so whether the caller retains or the uh, the callee retains. And so this is more kind of just really making explicit uh, what the behavior should be. Interesting. I didn't know that, actually. So in Objective-C, self is passed as plus one, and in Swift, it's plus zero. I might be getting it flipped, but it, it is the okay. semantics are different uh, and opposite to each other, actually, which Interesting. has caused a number of issues um, uh, whenever you're doing Swift and Objective-C interop, right. uh, especially around generics, we've seen there's a handful of, uh, of Swift bugs that we're tracking um, that, uh, that have the wrong semantics applied. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that results in a runtime crash and, and kind of mismatched uh, retain release pairs. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm not sure which is which, but the semantics are definitely flipped in Objective-C and Swift. And the crash is because of the mismatched retainer release. That's right. So you'll either have, uh, well, usually it manifests itself as an under-release, yeah, um, or which which is a memory leak, or mm-hmm. an over-release, which is accessing uh, freed memory. Right. Yeah. Right. So neither of which are, are good. <laughs> right. So there's this shared keyword, and then there's another keyword. There's the owned keyword. 
So uh, that's basically the exact opposite of shared, and um, it, it basically avoids um, the, the sharing of the value, as in you can skip uh, some of the ARC retain release calls, and you can uh, avoid uh, doing things like like mutations, uh, right? Where there is another keyword called consuming, which is definitely like basically enforces mutation. Uh, so these are three keywords that can help um, clarify the intent of how a value should be used when it's passed from one part of the code to another. Yeah, so I think that about wraps up uh, this episode. Um, there is a lot more <laughs> to cover about ownership, but uh, sure. but that's that's all we'll cover today. Feel free to read up on this. Um, a lot of this is up in the air as well. Some of it has been implemented already, like some of the law of exclusivity checks. Um, but there's definitely a lot more that uh, that we couldn't cover today. Yeah, thanks again to uh, Buddy Build for sponsoring this issue or this uh, <laughs> this episode. Uh, and we will see you next time. You can find me on Twitter, Jesse underscore Squires. You can find me on Twitter at SimJP and the show at Swift underscore Unwrapped. Uh, see you next time.